Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. I'm your host, Sucheta Kamath, and I believe by trying to find a connection between neuroscience, psychology, and education in everyday uh, life, we can um, help people transform their lives. Uh, this is one of the ways we can all achieve personal and collective growth. As you know, I bring you experts from all around the globe, uh, trying to really take a deep dive into various topics. And this podcast is uh, fueled by uh, specific goals. One is uh, to explain what executive function is and how crucial it is for personal development, self-sufficiency, and even moral development. Second is to help people um, understand the the relationship between the current self and the future self. And anytime we take on this task of engaging in change, self-change, we need experts to guide us because we are not as observant as we think we are. And lastly, I'm really hopeful that uh, these conversations will help you create a playbook for personal success. And uh, one of the topics that I've been thinking a lot about and uh, I will be um, talking or presenting on is autism spectrum disorder. And um, having been in this profession for many, many years, um, this used to be one of my favorite uh, group of clients that I served and saw. And, uh, um, you know, in the last 20 years, as my practice has changed, uh, culture has changed, uh, and so has my practice. I see that there's greater awareness, uh, there's great, greater acceptance, uh, but there's also a shift in um, how people with subtle symptoms are seeking help. And with that in mind, um, I am uh, delighted to uh, invite a, a dear, dear colleague uh, and a friend of a friend, uh, Dr. Donna Henderson. Uh, she has been a clinical psychologist over 30 years. Uh, she's passionate about identifying and supporting autistic individuals, particularly those who camouflage um, and uh, we will take a deep dive into the word camouflage here. Uh, she's a co-author uh, with Dr. Sarah Wayland and Jamel White of two books, uh, Is This Autism, A Guide for Clinicians and Everyone Else, and Is This Autism, A Companion Guide for Diagnosing. Dr. Henderson's professional home is the Strixrood Group in Silver Spring, Maryland, where she provides neuropsychological evaluation for children, adolescents, and adults who would like to understand themselves better. Uh, she is a sought-after lecturer on the less obvious presentation of autism, autistic girls and women, PDA, and on parenting with complex profiles. Uh, one of uh, the reasons she is on this uh, podcast is I had the um, surprise privilege of uh, attending one of her uh, workshops on ASHA Learning Pass, which is the American Speech and Hearing Association. And then I backtracked and connected it with Bill um, uh, Strixrude, who has been on this podcast. So with all that said, welcome, Donna. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. So we talk about executive function, which en entails this adaptive flexibility, goal assessment, intentionally activating your focus, and persisting in the face of difficulties. And I love to uh, often ask uh, my guests that, um, can we talk a little bit about you as a learner and thinker when you were younger? Um, what kind of uh, student were you? And when did you become aware of your capacity to think uh, as a learner? Wow, that, it's a, it's a great question. I was a terrible student, <laughs> absolutely really? terrible. Oh yeah, for the first half of my life, I was completely unaware of how poor my executive functioning was. It was really poor. My my inhibitory control, my attention, my working memory, it was all so bad, and and I wasn't aware that. I was sort of committing the same mistakes over and over again. I wasn't doing anything to help myself. And I think worst of all, I engaged in a lot of self-blame because I, oh. I had this sense that I was a smart kid 
Hmm. And I was getting by, but I also vaguely knew that there was something off about my ability to self-regulate. And and without a good explanation, I just vaguely blamed myself for not trying hard enough or not being good enough. So when did you discover that this is, uh, and is that related to any uh, childhood diagnosis? I didn't get diagnosed with anything in childhood because it, it was a long, long, long time ago. And we, we weren't diagnosing these things in general and particularly not for smart girls. Um, and so I went to, when I went to graduate school, I started to learn about some of this and, and relate it to myself. But it wasn't until I think I was in my early 30s that um, I was diagnosed with ADHD which was incredibly validating and freeing. And I could finally, you know, not only start to help myself be more functional, but to stop blaming myself. Well, it's so interesting. I think uh, I have had Terry Moffitt on my podcast, who uh, she and her colleagues have done one of the long, longest running um, studies, uh, uh, which has been the cohort has entered age 50. And one of the findings they had, so, and the participants uh were more than 1,000 children uh, from age zero, and the cohort is now 50, as I mentioned. And one of the findings she talks about that over lifespan, every single human being is going to be diagnosable or experience crisis that will officially qualify for a mental disorder. Hmm. And so she said, we might want to reconsider uh, labeling people uh, and particularly looking at labels uh, as a permanent label. So look at your success, you know, uh, the struggles we know about ADHD, uh, you know, this writing difficulty, being able to cohesively um, put ideas together or complete higher education. You are that student who probably struggled a lot, but built insight and then built skills. Uh, Is that fair to say about your own journey? Yeah. And I, you know, when you, you mentioned camouflaging earlier, and we usually talk about camouflaging in the context of autism, but as an ADHD, I can relate to it in, in a way, because I do think that even now as an adult, most of the people who interact with me professionally would not think I have ADHD. I show up for things on time. I do my paperwork. I'm organized or come across as organized. But what they don't see is the unbelievable amount of effort that that takes for me and the stress that it causes and how much help I get that, you know, I'm, I'm really, really calendar challenged. I cannot work a calendar to save my life. I no love matter calendar how challenged. <laughs> and, and so, you know, my husband helps me manage our home calendar and I have someone at work who helps me manage my work calendar. And without that, I would not be nearly as functional as I am. And that's just one little example. So I, I really relate to that concept of camouflaging. Um, excellent. So let's start talking about the uh, your area of expertise. And uh, so uh, we are here to talk about autism spectrum disorder. And so can you just, uh, for our listeners, um, um introduce the definition of uh, autism spectrum disorder. And I think we have gotten rid of the term Asperger's syndrome, which of course freaked a lot of people out, including me, uh, because that was one of the ways to describe the subtle uh, presentation of executive uh, or of, um, you know, social communication difficulties. Uh, And um, so let's begin there. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it, it seems like an easy question, but it's actually complicated because the DSM and the ICD, the things that we use to diagnose people, define autism through observable behaviors, right? They talk about social and communication differences, and they talk about the repetitive and restricted behaviors. But the problem is that because those books define autism through the behaviors, we start to think that's what autism is. Autism Mm. is those behaviors. But there are people who camouflage and don't show those behaviors. And that doesn't mean they're not autistic. To understand those people, it's essential to understand that autism isn't the behaviors. It's the fact that you have a different kind of nervous system. Okay? So that's sort of the first layer. And if you have this different kind of nervous system, you're going to experience and perceive and process and respond to the world in a very different way from most people. You're going to process 
internal sensations differently, external sensations, movement, communication, information differently than most people. And so the manifestations of those differences are, are the behaviors that we look for. And, and having this different kind of nervous system isn't a problem per se, except that autistic people have to live in a world that is designed largely for non-autistic people. And so there's a mismatch between their nervous system and the world. And that mismatch causes a lot of problems. It causes a lot of, you know, misunderstandings and being misunderstood and autistic burnout. And then, so that's another layer on top of having a different kind of nervous system. And then on top of that, you have the fact that they're a minority group. And so when you are a part of a minority group and there's an, an awkward interaction or an interaction that doesn't go well between a member of the majority group and a member of the minority group, it's the member of the minority group that gets blamed or is faulted. Hmm. And so that's the paradigm we, we call sort of ableism when it comes to autism. And then there's even another layer on top of that, which is that autistic people then internalize and blame themselves, especially if they don't know they're autistic. And so I'm sorry if you thought you were asking like a really quick, easy question, but I think it's, it's important to understand the whole autistic experience and not just say like, it's these behaviors. It's somebody who flaps their arms because it's, it's so much more nuanced than that. And, and the last thing I'll say about that is, and you used the word subtle a few times, and I used to call it this, the subtle presentation of autism, and I've switched to the less obvious presentation. because Oh, the what's the a distinction? Well, the behaviors are subtle, but the internal experience is absolutely not subtle. And it was, I realized when I was calling it subtle, I was inadvertently sort of downplaying what a huge, huge, huge effect it has on these people's lives. Okay, so you have presented so many wonderful ideas. So I would like to kind of maybe address, uh, address a few things. So number one, you're saying uh, that um, there's a conventional wisdom about autism. And uh, we may be getting it wrong because it is uh, relies heavily on explicit presentation of oddity or awkwardness or certain behaviors that are blaring <laughs> or glaringly uh, you you are able to observe. And if that is not the case, then we may not uh, we may be missing uh, the big picture. And you know this reminds me of Hannah Gatsby, um, one of the comedians who has done amazing justice to this uh, complicated process by talking about her own life struggle. Um, and she has brought a lot of attention. But one of the uh, stories she used to tell um, in her stand-up that uh, when she came back from school, she would have these very odd behaviors, such as rolling uh, in the living room. And the parents never <laughs> thought what to do with it. And it was, uh, I mean, she was like 12, 13. So it's not like a six-year-old rolling on the floor, but she needed something to calm her nervous system down. And, and or she would be in, in the yard or like just picking flowers or earthworms. So um, but that's a solo game. Like nobody's observing that. And it's not even in the context of academics. So she was absolutely appeared semi well put together, yeah. uh, but nobody really, uh, other than calling her um, different, uh, they left it alone at that. So uh, I think I'm going to use your, uh, use a quote <laughs> that you said that when we say subtle presentation of autism, we mean their symptoms may be subtle, but effects of their life is anything but subtle. So this is your quote. I love that. So tell us a little bit about why you say that, which I think you were talking about that the the responsibility is on the autistic person to compensate for the failing to meet expectations. That could be one of them. Right. It, right? That, that's absolutely true. I, I mean, autistic people, and I should say I use identity first language. There's no right or wrong language. There are some people who prefer person first language and say person with autism. There are other people who prefer autistic person, right? So I'm, I'm using autistic person and that's a personal choice. Um, it, it just, I say that because it can be jarring for people who are trained exclusively in the medical model and aren't used to that you mm. know, language. But, um, 
there's a mountain of research that shows that autistic people are at higher risk for pretty much every, every problem you can imagine. Mental health problems like depression and anxiety and eating disorders and substance use. And they are at at far, far greater risk for suicidal ideation and actual suicide. They have higher rates of adverse life events, trauma and victimization. They have higher rates of so many different kinds of medical challenges, GI disorders, asthma, allergies, autoimmune disorders, diabetes, so many medical challenges. I, I mean, so that's why I say the effect on their lives is huge. Whether or not they know they're autistic, they're at higher risk for so many challenges. And, you know, as you were describing the list of, uh, which is, again, going back to, and this may not interest all of our listeners, but uh, when it comes down to diagnostic process, uh, you know, even as a speech and language pathologist, if we are looking at a uh, a young patient or client uh, and serve the needs, uh, some of these questions may not even be asked, or it may not be part of education. Uh, why we should intervene or support. Um, so, so I think you made your point very clearly uh, clear that um, there is one, uh, there's profound uh, ramifications over a lifespan. Uh, but two, I think uh, the personal insight is very critical uh, so that you're advocating your, uh, on behalf of yourself. But the very skills that go into advocacy are challenged. So can we talk a little bit about um, some... Um, uh, some details about um, the, and you also described in your one of the presentations is the autism radar, how to expand this autism radar. So there's, uh, of course, in terms of the diagnostic process, uh, there's a persistent deficit in uh, social communication and uh, uh, social interactions across mm-hmm. multiple contexts. Mm-hmm. But the second part is the restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interest, uh, or activities uh, as manifested by at least two of the um, you know, many that uh, are listed. And I don't want, want to get into that. But um, so when we talk about um, can um, anybody who is not a psychologist diagnose uh, people with autism disorder, a spectrum disorder? Yeah. I mean, depending on where you live, if you are legally allowed to make mental health diagnoses, then you can diagnose autism. So many different types of therapists, of course, you know, psychiatrists, neurologists, um, pediatricians in theory, although I, I don't see them diagnosing autism very much. They often refer out. It absolutely does not have to be a psychologist or a neuropsychologist. And it, it's sort of part of my personal mission to help more um mental health clinicians get comfortable with this, know what to look for, know how to look for it and get comfortable diagnosing it. It's there. A lot of clinicians are intimidated by autism. They didn't get good training about it. They feel like it's overwhelming and scary and like they're giving bad news if they even bring it up. And it's sort of my personal mission to help them get over that so that we can do all do better by these people. So, so then let's talk a little bit about a, a subgroup uh, that often uh, is very readily camouflaged, uh, which is girls and women. Uh, can you talk a, a little bit about the difference, the way, um, I, I mean, uh, the incidence rate is greater in boys, uh, correct? And But the presentation is uh, even uh, less obvious in girls. So how does that impact, uh, or what what is the presentation and how does that impact in them receive proper attention and care? Sure. So the the easiest way for me to sort of highlight some of the differences is to quickly run through the diagnostic criteria, if that's okay. Okay. That'd be great. So um, as you said, there's two categories. And the first category are social and communication differences. And there are three in that category and you have to meet all three. And the first one is about reciprocal interactions. And people think this means somebody who is completely disengaged and lacks empathy. But what it really gets at is everything about the whole back and forth flow of social interactions, intuitively knowing how to greet people, how to respond to greetings, sharing personal information, showing interest in other people, understanding other people's perspectives, giving context to people, just everything about this, sort of intuitively getting into somebody else's head and and knowing 
what's going on from their perspective. So, and it's not as easy as can they do it, but how do they do it and how effortful it is. And so what we know about a lot of autistic girls and and the research is on the girls, but of course, anybody along the entire gender spectrum can have this less obvious presentation of autism. So we should say that is that they, they have better functional social interaction skills than the boys do, but they are working very, very hard to pull that off. And their prefrontal lobe in particular is working. They are going through decision trees. They are planning. They are processing, making decisions. And so it uses up a lot of sort of executive functioning space, if you will. It's effortful. It's exhausting. It's anxiety provoking. So you have to understand their inner experience. It's not enough to observe their behavior. You have to know what's going on underneath. So that's the first criterion. The second one in the social and communication category is nonverbal communication. Mm. So that's, you know, eye contact, gestures, facial expressions, um, all of that sort of thing, reading other people's and giving off your own. And what people usually think this means is somebody who completely lacks any eye contact or has totally flat affect. And you don't get that a lot, especially with these bright girls. It can um, be restricted affect or blunted affect or affect that doesn't necessarily match the situation. Their rate of speech can be sl- unusually slow or unusually fast. Um, they might have difficulty reading other people's facial expressions. The research suggests that they're, they do pretty well at the expressive affect, although, of co- again, they're, they're putting effort into that. And I've had so many girls and women tell me, oh, yeah, I have to consciously remind myself, smile now, put on your sad face now. Again, it's taking up executive functioning resources to do that. Um, and, you know, one thing, if I yeah. may interject, yeah. um, I was watching uh, in preparation for this, you know, like watching TED Talks. And uh, I think Nima McCann uh, McCann is her name, uh, who talked about this, her own uh, hidden Asperger's presentation uh, with girls. And she was talking about this point that you made about feeling exhausted, like always feeling that she is like on high alert, like combat zone alert. And, and second thing I was, um, in your presentation, uh, one of the things I heard you talk about, which, uh, I think this, um, this lack of reciprocity, um, or reciprocal interactions can lead uh, to people perceiving, uh, that you are actually, uh, clueless, oblivious, but more importantly, rude and mean yeah. and, a narcissistic, like being called things uh, that have huge negative implications when it may be simply it's a autism spectrum disorder. So that to me is also um, can lead to a lot of exclusionary behaviors or people thinking, oh, you think you're all that? Let me show you. (laughs) And so, you know what I mean? It can lead to you getting people's wrath sometimes. It's so true, especially, so if you see a boy who's overtly odd and like never makes eye contact and is talking about, you know, airport codes all the time, sort of this stereotypical understanding of autism, and he says something that you feel is rude, you're going to cut him a break, right? But if you see a girl who's well-dressed, has good hygiene, has decent basic social skills, you know, says please and thank you and all that, and then she's overly blunt you're not going to cut her a break. You're going to think it's it's part of her character in a negative way. And so these girls get judged a lot on that and, and misunderstood. Yeah. And that TED Talk you mentioned, I, it's one of my favorites. It's called Copy and Paste. Copy and Paste. Yes. yes. It's because <laughs> she's all kinds of adorable, right? This girl she's is so just, beautiful too. Yes. Right. And she's well-spoken and adorable and engaging. And you, it's just not what people think of as autism. So it's a great one for people to watch. And so before we move on to the next after the reciprocal interactions, but I also wanted to talk about, uh, particularly in my practice, um, I saw a lot of that impacting um, um, empathy uh, for suffering. So if you have this, uh, you know, nuanced uh, deficit um, and if you do not have advocacy skills or you may be genuinely unaware that you are even presenting this way, uh, people are treating you poorly, but they also are refusing to help because they have this um, 
attitude of that will teach you a lesson. So I saw a lot of that with the teens that I worked with, uh, and and particularly the mean girls effect was the worst. Um, I, I had a young woman who um, was in a private school and definitely um, not picking up on a lot of subtleties of how people are treating her, but always felt that she would, she tried to uh, join a club. Um, and this was her freshman year. And every single club, uh, they would say that it's full. Mm. Now, there was no, I mean, no reason the club would be full, but she literally believed them and would go to the next one and tried the same thing. And so finally, when she came, this was two weeks after school had started, she said, I, I don't know, somehow I missed how how to belong to a club because all clubs are full. So anyway, I, I reached out to the guidance counselor and I'm like, what is your protocol? Can students not join? She said, there's no con- nothing called full. Like it's not based on number of students. She did not know, yeah. uh, but they just did not want to have her there. And then the out of ways, they, they went out of their way to do that. So I, I bet you have a lot of um, experience in this. How do these... Uh, children, particularly these young teenagers, present themselves in your sessions? Well, one-on-one with a supportive adult in a quiet environment, that's best case scenario for most of these girls. And so I often do notice, you know, some quirky little things, but quite often they are unbelievably engaging and delightful and fun to interact with. And they're at their best. And clinicians have to remember it doesn't matter what they're like in our offices as much as what they're like with their peers. And so this whole idea of you can just tell if someone is autistic in your office, you have got to throw that out. And I still fight that one, you know, mm. but you, because we, we have this sort of deep, deep, deep idea. You'll just know if they're autistic and, and that is not true for these girls. You have to look at the data and the data is, history, what they're like with their peers, what they're like out there in the world, not necessarily in our offices. Do you um, request them to provide you with a video? Uh, How do you gather information about that? Yeah. So interviewing is far, 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 far more important than social cognition tests. Our social cognition tests are not great. They're getting better, but they're not great. And so um, I interview a lot of people. I interview current teachers. I interview prior teachers. So if somebody's in ninth grade, their teachers don't really get to see them in unstructured interactions with their peers a whole lot, right? So I'll say to the child and to the parents, Who's, your, who's an elementary school teacher that got you that might remember hmm. you? I have never once, not one single time, called a teacher about a prior student and had that teacher say, I don't remember that kid. Teachers are amazing. Like, I barely remember yesterday. And <laughs> teachers can remember a kid they had 12 years ago. It's unbelievable to me. So it's those elementary school teachers. Um, I look at report cards, old, especially elementary school report cards for, for little signals of something that was going on. And I'll interview anybody, the, their friends, parents, their grandma, Girl Scout leader. I just talk with the girl and her parents about who in your life has seen you interacting with your peers that I can talk to. And importantly, I interview the girls themselves to understand their inner experience. That is absolutely essential. And, and the best, easiest example of that is eye contact. So many of these girls make very typical eye contact. You wouldn't notice anything unusual about it. But if you ask them, what's eye contact like for you? They will say, they'll have a lot exhausting. to say. Yeah, it's exhausting or I don't mind it, but it, I have to keep reminding myself or I hate it. It's stressful, but I know people want it. They'll, they'll give you something. Whereas non-autistic girls, they'll be like, I, I don't know. It's eye contact. I don't think about <laughs> it. It just happens, right? They don't even understand why you're asking this question. And, you know, this is the difference I see uh, between uh, young men and women that I have worked with. Uh, young men are oblivious to um, the, the, this insight about um, how hard uh, a girl will say she has worked on her eye contact 
the boys wouldn't even put that effort. They're not giving eye contact and they're not uh, aware of the effort that one might need to put, or they may not even place the value that other people wanted. So um, one question that popped into my head is, why is it so, is it the socializing of the girls that really kind of, um, there is awareness that I must exhibit these skills, but I don't have them. They're not natural to me. Is that why they they even have more assimilated skill set than the boys do? Yeah, it's it's probably there are probably multiple reasons for it, but a big one is sort of how they are how how we raise girls as opposed to raising boys, and how much more social girl world is than boy world. And you know, I had a, a girl in my office today. I think she's eleven. And she eats lunch with the boys at school, which for some reason is upsetting all of her teachers and her parents. Like, I don't get why everybody's bothered by it, but they are. And I asked her, you know, what makes you choose the boy, t- the boy table over the girl table? And she said, the girls are all talking about pop culture and their problems and this and that and their feelings. And she said, I hate it. I don't understand it. It just doesn't resonate with me at all. And the boys, they talk about two things, cars and, and poo. <laughs> she said, like, I, and oh, and the other thing she said, and this is so true, um, and these are my words, not hers, but this is what she said. Basically, in girl world, there's no forgiveness. If you commit a social faux pas, especially girls from like fifth through eighth grade, you know, that middle school era, they're unforgiving. Whereas boys don't care. They get over it. She actually said, you could punch a boy in the face and he'll still be your friend and he doesn't care. Like, And it's true. I just think oh boy my world God. and girl world are, is so different, and especially in those middle years there. Um, I, I love that. This just reminded me of a, a, a clip, um, of a dating clip. So I don't even remember the show, but... Um, the the two people got together and and I think the boy had um, uh, had uh, was on an autism spectrum and he um, it was like a you know uh, as I said date so he uh, the, they there were props on the table to ask questions and the question was what name three favorite things and so of course the boy says my first favorite thing is Batman. Uh, second favorite thing is trains and the th- this is a grown-up like you know like a 26 year old and mm-hmm. the third thing is chocolate milk and then he turns to her and say what do you think about my uh, favorite things and she said I don't like them he gets up and say leaves <laughs> he said if you don't like Batman I don't like you <laughs> Just leaves. there you go yeah. <laughs> so in that way it is kind of to me uh, I I call them uh, all um, people uh, you know artistic people uh, persons, individuals as uh, the most golden heart hearted individuals because their feelings and emotions are transparent and there's genuine no malice. So uh, I just really yeah, appreciate that. I, I agree. And the other thing that I think that example brings up is the uh, autistic communication preference is often to be very direct. They don't yes. do as well with indirect communication implicit communication, figurative language that's harder for them to, to express themselves that way and to understand when other people communicate that way. And so they have this very direct communication style, which that story beautifully portrayed. But non-autistics perceive that communication direct, as rude or blunt or hurtful. And it's there. I agree with you. They, they don't mean to be hurtful in that moment. It's just a style preference. And it's not that theirs is better or worse than ours. I'm, I'm saying ours. I'm a non-autistic woman. It's just different, you know? And one paper, you know, Steven Pinker, many, many years ago, wrote a paper of indirect speech, the veiled communication and evolutionary purpose of um, veiled communication. Why did we begin to hide our intent? So when you could really, so it was a, a sophisticated what, a way of yielding um, uh, collaboration and uh, cooperation from others. So one of the things that the disadvantage I see, and when I do the metacognitive training uh, with uh, autistic persons, this is what I talk about, is what is the benefit of certain modifications to your communication? Because ultimately, communication is means of yielding a community or a community where you cooperate 
and others cooperate with you. So you may not want to be friends with them or you may not want to like them, but if in the workspace you want to collaborate, at home space you want to collaborate, uh, and collaboration is one of the uh, strongest ways to reduce a burden, right? Personal burden. Um, and, and so it is really interesting to me. Um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts about um, this a- idea of uh, my preferred communication is direct, which may present me as a blunt, insensitive person. Uh, but should I also think a little bit more uh, of intent versus impact? Absolutely. With a major caveat. And yes, the caveat I know that. is as long as the burden of change isn't all on them. And that's what we tend to do. You need to change to fit into our world. And ideally, we're all adjusting to meet each other halfway. And I I can give you a a great personal example of that if you'd like. Yes. So my family, there are, I have three children, two are autistic, one is not. And so on my side of the the dinner table, it's me and my non-autistic kid. And then on the other side of the dinner table, it just happens to be the two autistic kids. And and I say kids, they're young adults. Um, We didn't plan it that way. That's just how where everybody sits. And my husband sits at the head of the table. So one day, my non-autistic kid was telling a story, which admittedly was not the most fascinating story. But I was watching my two autistic kids that they were looking down at their food and they weren't looking at her at all while she was telling this story. And I was getting more and more annoyed on her behalf because it felt rude to me as a non-autistic person. And so after a few minutes, and this is going to shock people, but this is how we talk in my family. It's not for everybody, (laughs) but it works for us. I love it. (laughs) I said, hey, autistic people, how about a little eye contact over here for the non-autistic people, right? And we all laughed. And then they rightfully put me in my place and said, we have to make eye contact out there in the world all day long. And we do it because non-autistic people need it. Why should we have to do it in our own home? And they were right. Like it was incredibly ableist of me, right? It never even occurred to me. Can they get a break? I need it. Like, why should they have to meet my needs? Right? Yes, it, it was. And so just being able wow. to be open and talk about this stuff openly with this idea that nobody's right or wrong. We're all just trying to find middle ground here that we can live with, you know. And, you know, to me, like that is such a profound example of how to do it well. I don't think like I think people think that you become a person and come out and interact with the world. You know, like yeah. we need to like just, okay, like uh, uh, where is Stacy? Well, she's uh, gone on a retreat to change herself and then she'll be brought back and then ta-da, you know? Yeah. I, I love this idea that you can get into these difficult spaces and say, I needed a little eye contact and then your children being able to say, but I'm exhausted, I'm unable to give, but that doesn't diminish my engagement or participation. And you right. say, I got it. Right. That to me is profound, wonderful, excellent communication. (laughs) You know, that's what we want. (laughs) Yeah. And that's just eye contact. And you could just talk about that all day long because I can't tell you how many autistic students I've worked with whose teachers get annoyed with them because they don't look up at the teacher when the teacher is lecturing, but they can focus better when they're not Not looking looking at her. And they shouldn't be forced to look at her or to be judged for not looking at the teacher, right? And at the same time, they need to learn that in certain conversations, like in a job interview, if you don't make eye contact, it's not going to go well. And there are times when you you do kind of need to suck it up and, and do things in a way that you don't love, right? And it's a matter of, and this goes back to camouflaging, camouflaging isn't good or bad, right? It's useful, But if overdone, it's too exhausting and stressful. So the idea is to know when you're camouflaging, when you should camouflage, when you can drop Mm. the mask, how it all feels so you can be in control of the whole experience, you know? You know, this reminds me of my interaction with my husband. Uh, When we drive, like when I'm very animated, I like to look at people. And I'm driving and we have just come out, uh, come back from a party and I'm driving and I like to look at him. And he says, why do you have to look at me to talk to me? Just focus on the road. I'm like, but I want to see your expression. And so I think this is such a interesting thing because I am like a eye contact hog. And I think uh, that particularly uh, 
informs my lens. So I can see being a little judgy of people if they're not providing what I am craving for uh, yeah. without really thinking over what am I compromising so that they receive what they need. So uh, a really fantastic point about that. Um, so we still have two more uh, uh, diagnostic criteria that you were talking about. So can we talk a little bit about the relationship management, which yeah. is the second part of the first part? Uh, yeah. diagnostic so process. It's the third part. So so under social Sorry, yes. communication, we have the interactions, no. reciprocal yeah. interactions. And number two is nonverbal communication, which we briefly talked about. And then the third one is relationships. And people think that means somebody who doesn't want friends or doesn't have friends. And that's not the case. And, you know, most of these autistic kids have friends or have had friends. They may have difficulty making new friends or deepening the friendships or maintaining the friendships. They may have trouble understanding different relationships, having healthy relationships, managing conflict. So some aspect of relationships, it's not that they're just friendless. Um, and so that's an important thing to know. And particularly with the girls, the timeline here can be very different because in elementary school, a lot of times the moms support friendships. Friendships are based on who lives on your street, who is your mom's yeah. friend, friends, and who's in your Girl Scout troop, right? Who's in your class at school? And there's a lot of support and scaffolding for playdates. And around fifth grade, sixth grade, that goes away and the girls have to scaffold for themselves. And at the same time, playdates and time spent together becomes less structured. It's less about playing a game and more about interact talking, the back and forth talking. And so that's often when we see the trouble with relationships really, really become problematic. So those are the three social criteria. And, you know, sorry, I, I took a little bit out of order, so I forgot we already addressed the nonverbal communication. I think one thing I was uh, curious about, so this, um, these three components that we, uh, you just described, uh, I think that uh, is under the social and communication category. And then we have the second yeah. uh, category. Can you uh, quickly talk about that? Uh, and, um, you know, um, to your point, I think what is the goal of us? Uh, diagnosing and then what does what is the goal of intervention or support that we provide yeah um okay. yeah i know I, I know we don't have much time so I'll, I'll just really briefly cover so the second category repetitive and restricted behaviors there are four you only need to meet two of the four the first one is behavior that's repetitive and it can be movement speech or use of objects it doesn't have to be something as overt as hand flapping it can be pacing back and forth, watching the same TV show over and over and over again, reading the same book over and over again, making lists, you know, obsessively making all kinds of lists because it's fun. So there's a wide variety of stuff there. Number two is flexibility. And it's not that somebody's inflexible every moment of every day and is a big behavior problem, but they have some vulnerability to black and white thinking, to getting stuck in their thinking, hmm. being literal, to being a rigid rule follower, having difficulty with change or perfectionism. So the third one is interests. And in sort of the stereotypical autism presentation, we think of odd interests like orange traffic cones or airport codes. But with a lot of these girls, <laughs> it's typical interests that are really, really, really intense. So they might pick somebody in pop culture, um, like, you know, a K-pop group or uh, reading, um, animals, warrior cats is a big one, you know, and then they just get really, really intense about it. And then the last one is sensory. And, you know, with sensory stuff, people think of our five main senses, but there are eight senses and it's important for people to remember about proprioception, vestibular, and the most important one of all, interoception, which is your ability to sense what's happening inside your body for your emotions and for your homeostasis, like knowing if you're hungry or if you're tired. So that is like the fastest possible overview. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners. <laughs> I could not have done it any faster. Um and the, um, so you also asked the purpose of diagnosis and the point of intervention. I was going to say one quick comment about, yeah. I know, I, uh, you know, as you were listening, um, this is terrible, but, uh, you know, we, I have 
a very deep interest in watching some shows again and again. Does that mean? <laughs> Which no. I had not thought about. <laughs> so anybody can have any of these symptoms, right? I have some sensory sensitivities and my, my husband accuses me of being rigid sometimes, right? <laughs> right? So having one or two of these doesn't make you autistic. It doesn't even make you a little bit autistic. It's somebody who has the whole picture. So this is where you have to step mm. back and look at the big picture of a person, right? Um, to, to wonder if they're autistic. Um, oh, and so bringing back to your point about what is uh, the purpose of yeah. intervention and support. It's self-understanding. It changes the narrative, right? You know, we, we just, I think a main point of adolescence and young adulthood especially is to understand who you are as a person and who you might be friends with and how you might contribute to this world and what's a good way for you to spend your life, like to start to figure all this stuff out and knowing if you have a different kind of nervous system and specifically how. It's not just whether mm. or not you're autistic, but what does that mean to, to you and for you because you're different from every other autistic person on this planet. It can help them understand who they are. And you've talked about self-advocacy. You can't self-advocate if you don't understand who you are and what you need in non-judgmental terms, hmm. right? I think it's so essential. Well, I cannot believe I have taken up so much of your time talking about the front-loading all these questions about the 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 process of understanding the presentation and the diagnostic process. I'm, I'm blaming myself for not um, thinking about the future self of Sucheda in 45 minutes. So here we are. I wanted to talk about two things as we close. Number one, if you can quickly touch up on this idea of, um, uh, you know, how do you, how does one conceptualize autism and seeing it through the neurodiversity lens? Um, what do you think about the term neurodiversity? And then we'll close out with your any recommendations you might have for us. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the whole concept of neurodiversity. Absolutely. Um, and, and I acknowledge that it's not for everybody because there are people who have the classic presentation of autism who are challenged in such deep ways that they need 24 hour care and supervision. And I understand how some of those people and the people who love them are not on board with the idea that this is all neurodiversity. I, I get that. Hmm. And I, I also see that for a lot of autistic people, this is not that there's something wrong with me. It's just that I'm different. And, and that brings with it a lot of strengths as well as some challenges. Well, I think the, the bottom line conclusion I have received from you, your work, your books, uh, the way you present is this incredible compassion and, much larger lens, the 30,000 uh, feet view, uh, because to your point, I think um, there are multiple ways we behave, think, act, and our thinking and feelings are invisible. And so if we judge people simply by their behaviors, uh, we are boxing people in too quickly. Uh, and also, particularly when there's so many um, negative assumptions about uh, that um those labels. So as we close, um, uh, what are a few recommendations you have for our listeners uh, as they um, can learn from you and what has influenced you uh, to become this incredibly knowledgeable and thoughtful person? And it doesn't need to be, of course, professional work. So gosh, asking me for book recommendations is like torture because I want to give you my favorite 50 books, but okay, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to give you three Okay. And only one of them is directly related, but the other two are closely related. So um, what I mean when I say I'm autistic by Annie Kodowitz. Okay, great. Because you can like to read things by autistic individuals is the best way to understand this. And Annie's book is just fantastic. So if you're going to read one book to try to understand this, what I mean when I say I'm autistic. Um I recently read The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy-Paul. I love what? that book. Oh, can you please interview her for me? Like, yes, I will. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. That If you want to understand thinking and executive functioning and how to help, oh, my God, read that book. And it's such a beautifully written book. It, amazing. 
And then the last one I would say is one of my all-time favorites is called uh, Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed. And she's the the woman who wrote Wild. Um, Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, people know her from Wild, but oh, Tiny Beautiful Things. She actually did an an online advice column for years called Dear Sugar. And so that book is a collection of letters people wrote in her responses. And they're they're detailed. They're not quick little like, what do I do when I get a gift I don't like? They're much more detailed. And the reason I love that book so much, it is an absolute masterclass in validation and how to validate somebody, like truly, deeply validate them no matter what, even when you're going to then disagree with them. And so I, I, <laughs> oh, that I book see. is near and dear to my heart for that reason. Oh, fantastic. Anybody who gives uh, has an advice column, you know, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. Uh, to to appeal to multiple people as you're thinking about giving advice, you have to really think about multiple perspectives. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed and learned so much from you. And I think uh, I will say the same uh, for our listeners who probably are going to request uh, that you come back. Uh, so I will reach out to you again in six months. So maybe we can talk about uh, particularly your approach uh, to um, managing uh, these uh, challenges in autistic individuals. So uh, thank you again, uh, uh, Donna, for being on this podcast and uh, providing us with great insight. Uh, And uh, listeners, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you again for tuning in. Uh, and uh, these are m- important conversations, as you can see, uh, that we are having with amazing, incredible, knowledgeable experts who are passionate about the work they do and the change they bring and help us become better people. So definitely, if you love the conversation, leave us a review, uh, share this podcast with your friends and family, and definitely stay tuned until next time. So thank you once again, Donna. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.